Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Well, this weekend, an anesthesiologist from Grand Prairie was officially welcomed. I'm not sure what the official term is, ratified? Or, I'm not sure how they call it, but it doesn't matter. Um, officially welcomed as the 155th president of the Canadian Medical Association. Uh, it's been around for 155 years, rather. Um, and in doing so, Dr. Alika Fontaine becomes, the LaFontaine becomes the first ever Indigenous president of the Canadian Medical Association. And joining us now to tell us all about it, we have Dr. LaFontaine. Uh, Dr. LaFontaine, thank you for joining us. Appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Um, first of all, congratulations. This is a, it's a remarkable achievement. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. You know, anytime that you get a chance to be the first at something, you can maybe bring in some new ideas and maybe chart a new direction, and that's what we're really hoping at the Canadian Medical Association. You know, relatively speaking, you're a young man, um, but you've been in this for a while, and I'm sure, like anybody who rises to a level you have, and perhaps more so in your case, you've had to overcome obstacles, right? What's the journey been like for you to get to the place where you're now president of the CMA? You know, being president of the CMA wasn't really on my life plan. You know, it wasn't really an aspiration that I had had, but in the course of the past few years, as patients know and physicians across the province know, we've been having a very, very tough time. You know, our relationships have gotten further apart from each other. Uh, care has gotten worse. Access times have gotten worse. And I really saw an opportunity to make an impact there, and that's that's why I ran. And I'm really grateful to the physicians of Alberta to put their faith in me. Personally, your own, you know, journey, uh, I mean... You're you're a trailblazer. You're you're a role model. Did you envision this? Um, like you say, it wasn't necessarily on your radar. But did you see it as something as even being possible? Or were there times in your life where you thought the obstacles are just too many? You know, when when you don't have that example out there or that uh, person who exemplifies that leadership position, I, it doesn't really cross your mind that it could be something that you could right. do. So to be honest, it wasn't really something that uh, I thought was possible, but. You know, there, there was some prodding from some really supportive people, and I put my hat in the ring and ended up working out. And like you say, you come in at a time where we know, and the stories are every day, uh, right across mm-hmm. this country, where healthcare is under incredible pressure right now. So as stepping in as president of the CMA, what do you see your role in trying to address some of the problems we're seeing in healthcare right now? How do you get involved in that area? I, I think one of the realities that we just have to acknowledge is that in this day and age, the systems of care that we've leaned on for so many years are, are truly collapsing. You know, having these rolling closures of, you know, emergency services or other types of services across provinces and territories in Canada, you know, th- this is not a normal thing. You know, hearing in the news every single day about nursing shortages and physician shortages, losing family physicians, um, this is not a normal cycle of ebb and flow in, in the healthcare system. And so in this environment, it's really, really important to make sure that we chart a path towards regaining that hope. And just acknowledge we, we are at a point where patients are not happy with the care that's being provided. And those who provide the care are not happy with the working environments that push us away from patients. Two major, major issues, obviously. The two biggest issues, I would think, when you talk about patients and providers, neither of them being happy. How do we fix that? We've had a long conversation on the air this morning about possibly exploring more private 
components of the public health care system, not abandoning public health care. But I mean, mm-hmm. what, what do, when you when you hear conversations like that, what are your thoughts? So I, I think we need to lean into these tough conversations and really hear uh, what's being said and then determine what we're actually trying to achieve. So th- there's two types of privatization that often get mixed together. The first is when you have a really strong, well-functioning public system that's supported by private care. Right. That is not the environment we're in right now. We all know the public system is collapsing. The second type is outsourcing. And I, I think when you talk to the average physician across the country, that's the kind of care that we're worried about. You know, if you push out capacity from the healthcare system, you fragment it, you lose the accountability and responsibility for ensuring that high-level quality of care. You know, you, you have a bunch of cooks in the kitchen, and eventually you can't even cook a basic meal. And so I, it, it's really scary what can happen if outsourcing becomes mainstream. And we've seen that happen with food supply across the country. We've seen that happen with, you know, electronics and cars. You know, inflation and disjointed uh, workflows is going to become a, a very real thing if we really lean into that outsourcing type of privatization. So you see it more as a, a possibility if it's a complementary situation where they both work together? Yeah, I, I think it comes back to what we're trying to accomplish, and it's going to be nuanced for every yeah, type of for sure. You know, Yeah, so uh, virtual care is, is one thing that, that definitely has a lot of private involvement. The question is, is, is the virtual care appropriate? Is it the type of care that you should be seeing someone in brick and mortar versus seeing somebody online? You know, are people getting uh, the type of care that they need and the satisfaction, not just the time to see someone, but also the quality of care? And if we start looking at all those different components, I think we can actually have a real conversation about how we need to build the healthcare system in the future. Now, as we mentioned, you're the first Indigenous president. How will that inform this process? Obviously, it gives you a unique perspective, one that we haven't had with the Canadian Medical Association before. How, how will that inform how you go about doing your job? I, I know I'll bring with me a lot of lived experience, particularly that of exclusion. You know, and I, I will say as somebody who works in Grand Prairie, it, it's not truly a rural community. I mean, we have a Costco. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, the fair size. Um, it, it's, it's shown me and had me provide care to many rural patients. And, you know, not having options in your care, you know, showing up and, and not really... Uh, understanding what's going on because people don't take the time to explain things, not having the resources that you might have in Edmonton or Calgary when you're providing care. You know, these are the realities of patients who live outside the city, particularly in rural areas. And so being able to bring that perspective, bring bring in this perspective of someone who uh, wasn't always at the table or when I was, wasn't always taken seriously. You know, these are things that not only apply to Indigenous patients and other racialized communities, but just to patients in general now in the current state of our system. Yeah, and I, I was going to ask you about that, because like you say, Grand Prairie isn't rural, but you deal with a lot of um, uh, rural health care, I'm sure. How mm-hmm. big, of, how, how do you, I mean, is, is the system, I guess the best way of putting it, is, is it fragmented? Do we have a problem where we've got certain issues in rural health care, we've got certain issues when it talks about the big cities, when we talk about our indigenous population, whatever the case may be, or do we have, like you say, a system in collapse coast to coast to coast for all aspects, everybody involved? Yeah, there's really been two decades where governments have approached the health system with this almost obsession when it comes to cost cutting. Yeah, You know, even when it comes to announcements, we immediately have this knee-jerk reaction that cost cutting is inherently a good thing. But we all know that you can't cost cut beyond a certain point. You know, you can cut your budget, but eventually you won't have enough food to eat or you won't have heat or other things. And so we, we've come to that point in healthcare where we've cut the wrong things 
And so sitting down and talking through where those wrong things are and, you know, hearing directly from patients and frontline, you know, physicians and nurses and other providers telling us where we've made those cuts too deeply is really going to lead us back to where we can actually have those relationships again in healthcare, where you show up and you can expect a good experience. Which is what we all want. Um, Dr. LaFontaine, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for the call. Thank you. That's Dr. Alika LaFontaine, who is the president of the Canadian Medical Association, effective yesterday, also an anesthesiologist from Grand Prairie. He grew up in uh, Saskatchewan, Regina, I believe.